what do you want more than anything? One of my favorite movies ever. I will say my favorite, no, I can't say my favorite movie. My second favorite movie is The Notebook. I've shared this with you before, so if you're new, I apologize if this is our first introduction together. But one of my favorite movies in The Notebook, and there's this famous scene in The Notebook where that's the conversation back and forth, right? Where he's yelling at her, what do you want? Just tell me what you want. And she's like, I don't know. And it's this amazing scene. If you haven't watched The Notebook, please go. And you can thank me later, right? But for you, think about that question. What do you want more than anything? Getting into the Christmas season, my kids have already started. Dad, here's what I want for Christmas. Here's what I want. Here's what I want. Change the question just a little bit. What do you wish for on a regular basis? Maybe you've had the same wish for weeks, for months, maybe even for years. But think about what are you striving for more than anything else in your life? Is it financial security? Is it a certain position within your job field? Is it just kids that will obey you without question? But once you have that answer, ask yourself, if you get it, do you think it will satisfy you? There's a woman, uh, I came across her story in the New York Times um, a couple months ago, and just kind of stuck with me, and so I've continued to kind of do some research on her, but her name is Evelyn Adams, and, and uh, she was a convenience store clerk in New Jersey. And she had this habit that she started way long ago that every week before she would clock out of her last shift for that week, she would spend $25 on lottery tickets. And she did that for years and years and years. And then one day she decided, okay, um, I'm going to up it a little bit. And so she started spending $100 a week on lottery tickets. And then one day, it paid off. She won the jackpot on October uh, in 1985. It was a $3.9 million jackpot. And now for most of us, we'd be like, okay, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm set. I don't need to play the lottery anymore. But Evelyn decided, she was like, I could still give 100 bucks a week. When you look at that, I think, man, you just beat a 1 in 3.2 million shot, and you won the lottery. She's like, well, I'll just keep going. And four months later, she won again. This time, she won a $1.9 million jackpot. The odds of her winning not one but two million-dollar jackpots was one in 5.2 million. She became the first person in New Jersey history to win multiple million-dollar jackpots. And to add to it in just four months. And so she took her winnings. She paid off her debt. She set aside some money for her daughter to be able to go to college. She bought a new car. She showered some of her closest relatives and friends with super extravagant gifts. And then she made this statement, the, the reporter that was doing a story on her asked her, are you going to quit playing the lottery? And she said, why would I quit now? <laughs> to which I would say, good point. <laughs> but she said this, she said, 
I long to live the American dream. She had a passion. Her passion was music. She always wanted to go to school for music. But she kept deferring her plan to study music, and she thought instead what would make her happiest was not to study music, but to buy her own music store. She took part of her money, she bought a music store, and unfortunately, she saw it close just a few months later. She got into the habit of offering loans to some of her acquaintances who said that they needed money, and she would offer them these loans with the intention or the thought that they would pay that money back. But she said most of them felt no need to pay it back, and so they didn't. By 2012, Adams had spent all of her winnings. She was in deeper debt than she was when she won her first jackpot. At this point, she had to sell her extravagant house, and she moved into a trailer. And she ended this interview by saying this. She said, I longed for the American dream, and when I got it, I realized it's not it's all cracked up to be. She said, when I lost it, I hit rock bottom, and it was a very hard fall. As I've read this story and as I've looked more into her story, it's super interesting. And I have to catch myself because the self-righteous part of me said, if that were me and I won that kind of money, I'd be more responsible. And if you know me at all... You would know I would spend at least a million dollars on football tickets and probably another million on Christmas decorations. I know those are two weird things to put together, but that's me. I'm a complicated guy. But I think for most of us, we probably wouldn't be as smart as we like to think that we would be. There's an author by the name of Cynthia Heimel, and and she has this famous saying. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Now, Cynthia is is, uh, proclaimed to be not a believer, and so there's a lot of wrong theology in that statement. And it's not true that God plays rotten jokes on us, right? That's not his character. But it is true that many of us tend to struggle going to God thinking that we know what our deepest wish is. Even more, we know what our deepest need is. We know the thing that will bring us satisfaction. And so we go to God with that, and then we wander in confusion because we don't know why we still struggle to find the satisfaction that we've been chasing. Today we're we're flipping into Mark chapter 2, but we're flipping sections also in the bigger narrative of Mark, and, and many people call this section that we're entering the beginning of opposition in Jesus' ministry. Up until this point, uh, there, there hasn't been much opposition to Jesus, and given we've only been in one chapter, but a lot happened in that one chapter. Jesus establishes his identity, his fame is increasing, he gathers his disciples together, he gives them uh, a little piece of what their mission is, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's doing miracles, all of these things. But now in Mark chapter 2, Mark is going to begin to focus on the different responses that people have to the gospel. Because the reality is that when the gospel is preached, there's always 
a response. And so let's dive into our story here. Mark chapter 2, the first 12 verses. And it says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that Jesus was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came and they brought to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And now some of the scribes were sitting there and they were questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately he picked up his bed, and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is a, a story that, that maybe some of you have heard before, maybe you're hearing for the first time, but nonetheless, it's a very intense moment in Jesus' ministry, and it's one of those parts in the gospel, in Scripture, where it really helps to put yourself into the narrative, to put yourself as a character, as an onlooker to what's going on. That Jesus, at this point, he returns to his, his home base of operations, Capernaum, and he's sitting in a home. And whose home it is doesn't really matter. There have been people that have made guess, you know, made a guess. Some say uh, it's possibly Peter's home or his mother-in-law. But, but picture in your mind just for a second that Jesus is just sitting in the middle of this home. And what does Mark say he's doing? He's teaching the gospel. He's preaching in probably the most gentle but most authoritative way that these people have ever heard before. And as he's there and as he's teaching, this crowd begins to build. What was maybe a few people at the beginning is now growing. The space between people is shrinking and it's getting shoulder to shoulder. There's barely room to move. The crowd starts to spill out of the doorway. They surround the entrance. People are pushing to get as close as they can. But then you have to think, are they wanting to get close so that they can hear the words of Jesus? Or are they wanting to get close so that they can see what happens next? There's probably people on both ends that are in this crowd. But Mark is emphasizing that his fame is spreading. And what's happening here is that Jesus' miracles that we've already seen in chapter 1 are producing interest in the community. And people are coming from all over to see what's going to happen next. But are people really being moved in their hearts are they allowing the words of Jesus to inspire a true faith and a proper recognition of who Jesus 
is. It seems like at least some people are. Because then we have this picture of four guys. They're carrying their friend on a mat. And you can see him come up from behind the crowd. And as they approach the house, they realize the massiveness of this crowd that is surrounding Jesus. And as they get closer to the crowd, they're hoping that people will part and allow him to be placed at the feet of Jesus to find healing. But nobody moves. And I'd like to know what's really going on here. Are they begging people to make a path to get their friend through? Are they trying to force their way through? How long are they struggling to push through? All they want is to bring this guy to Jesus, the one who they've heard can heal. But it seems hopeless. But go back. Remember, what is Jesus doing? He's teaching the word. He's proclaiming the gospel. When the gospel is preached, there will be a response. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at four types of responses that we see in this narrative. And the first one, I think, is the crowd. Because what they show here is an interested but unmoving heart. An interested but unmoving heart. Maybe you have before, but in, in the times that I've looked at this passage or heard it preached, people often don't focus on the crowd in this story. But I think there's something very telling, very uh, important that's happening here. Because here's a bunch of people who are interested in what Jesus has been doing. Then maybe even they're interested at this point in what he is saying. But the problem, the disconnect is they're not moved by it. I was having a conversation with a couple guys this week, and one of them made this very, uh, very profound illustration that really helped me with this. He says, if you imagine that there's wires that are attached to your brain, to your heart, sometimes when we hear the gospel, we feel like our wires are like this. Like they're not really connected to each other. We know the things, but we don't really feel them. We're not transformed by them. And every now and then we get maybe a wire that kind of briefly connects and we kind of get this jolt but then it kind of goes back to this, this big disconnect within our brains and our hearts. And I feel like that's kind of where this crowd is. Because think about it for a second. If Jesus is preaching the gospel, if he's teaching the word of God, then what we have to believe is that he's telling people about the love of God. He's telling people about how God cares for them. And even more than that, and we see this later on in Jesus' ministry, Jesus doesn't talk about the love of God without also talking about how out of that love we should love others. And so this is a message that they're hearing from Jesus, and maybe they've heard it before. Mark says three other times before this that Jesus went around teaching and preaching, and so maybe there's some repeaters in this crowd. Maybe even people that heard similar messages from John the Baptist. But for whatever reason, there's a disconnect that's happening. That when a group of people bring one of the most vulnerable among them, they don't move. They're interested in what he's going to do. What's the next big thing for Jesus? What's the next miracle going to look like? What's the next confrontation going to look like? 
Now hear me here, I'm, I'm not saying that this crowd is full of a bunch of jerks. But what I'm saying is they're missing the point. They're not allowing the words that Jesus is speaking to truly penetrate their sinful heart. And I was thinking about this a lot this week. If I were to connect this crowd with a group of people today, there's this school of thought that you've probably heard about before. We've talked about it actually uh, before, but there's this, there's this thought called moralistic therapeutic deism. And essentially what that is, is there was this sociologist by the name of Christian Smith, and back in 2005, he did this big study, and he wanted to study how do young people relate to religion. And so he spent many years studying a giant group of people, and his findings, he argued that a major portion of young people who identify as Christian really just use Christianity as a good moral rule book. He says it this way. He says, many churches are about providing, uh, many, many churches are about providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents as opposed to being about things like repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign divine, of steadfastly saying one's prayers, of faithfully observing high holy days, of building character through sufferings. In other words, and by the way, this isn't just young people. In other words, for many Christians, we want the parts of Christianity that make us feel good and happy, and we reject the ones that require work and a process. We struggle with the things that make us press into our mess. We struggle with allowing the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does because we know that it's painful and it's frustrating and it takes too long and it requires things of ourselves. It requires us to go into parts of our heart that we would prefer just not deal with. So give us the good. And I would say it this way. Having a heart that is interested in the gospel, but it's unwilling to be moved by the gospel, is nothing more than us looking for the nice Christian one-liners that agree with the majority of the world's moral principles. And so picking back up with the narrative... These four men, they're carrying their friend, and now they're left with a choice. What do they do now? They can't get through this crowd. This crowd is not willing to move for them. And so what are your options? You turn around, you go home, maybe try again next time. Maybe get there right when the door to the house opens next time, right? Or do you face the odds? Do you persevere? Do you get creative? Because you know that your deepest need is to be at the feet of Jesus. Now, confession moment, if I can be honest. If I was one of these four guys, which I'm thankful I wasn't, at this point, I probably would have looked at my paralytic buddy and said, Hey, Jim, you've been paralyzed a while. I think we can probably wait a few more days. 
right? Like, I, I think we can come back next time because I don't really see a, a way of us getting through. Now, think about this for a second. Don't raise your hand, but think. How many of you would probably think similar things? Like, uh, I guess we tried, right? Like, we tried to push through. The crowd's not budging. And then one of my friends around this mat is like, well, we could go up to the roof. And at that point, I'd be like, ooh, not really a fan of heights. Seems dangerous for my friend Jim here. Like, I don't know why I call him Jim. That's just a name that I gravitate towards. But I'm like, I, I don't know that that's the best course of action. But none of that happens in this narrative. What do they do? They say, all right, we can't go with plan A. What's plan B? And I don't know how many plans they went through, but eventually they decided, hey, we can get to the roof. And now you have to picture in your mind, right, you have to picture roofs were not like they are today. Roofs are flat. They're fairly easily accessible. A lot of life happened on people's roofs. And so they could get there. But I think the main focus of what we see in these four guys is what I would call a humble and willing heart response. Ultimately, they decided that for the sake of their friend and being moved by their faith, they were getting him to Jesus. And so picture it. They make their way somehow around the crowd. Probably they go to the house next door. And they get up on the roof. And somehow or another, they get their friend directly above where Jesus is. And now the, the, the makeup of the roof in that culture, because you, you have to understand this to really understand what's happening in the story, is, is you would build your house, and then you would put these long timbers on your house, and then you would weave some, uh, some, some straw or something, something like that, and you would lay that down across the logs, and then you would start putting clay or dirt down. And they had these big rollers, and they would roll those, and they would compact this mud, this clay, and they would keep putting clay down until there was a really, really thick layer of this hardened, super compact clay. And I picture these guys getting their friend up to the roof, and they put him down. And the four surround this area, and they just start to frantically dig. They're tearing through a little bit maybe even out of desperation because we have to get him in front of Jesus. And so I imagine as they're digging through the mud, mud's flying everywhere. They're tearing through this thatch. And at this point, pieces of the roof are falling in the house, probably on Jesus, on the crowd around them. What, what is happening in the room suddenly stops as the people are all now focused on what's going on up here. And Jesus is focused on what's going on up here. And I don't, I don't know what's happening, but are, are people yelling at these guys? Are they yelling at them to stop? I mean, they're destroying property. Imagine if somebody was digging a hole through your roof. What's the homeowner thinking? Like, hey, I don't know that my insurance covers this, guys. But we create kind of this nice story in our brain, right? But I have to think there's some opposition that they're being faced with. That not everybody's in agreement with their plan, but Jesus is. 
And Jesus just continues to look at them. And at some point, however long it took, they make a hole that's big enough for them to lower their friend down. And now here he is at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man and he looks at, their, at his friends. But don't turn your focus on the paralytic just yet. Because what's now left for these four who are still up on the roof to do? To rest. Their work is done. And now they can sit and watch Jesus do his work. But church, here's the problem. We love our excuses. We can think of so many different ways of why we don't have to do the hard stuff that the gospel requires us to do. We can convince ourselves that where we are is just fine. It's a season that we're in. It's the circumstances that we're dealt. And don't mishear me here. It's absolutely okay to be a wreck. But what's not okay is to stop striving to put yourself constantly at the feet of Jesus. To find excuses why you can just stay in your hurt, in your anger, in your depression. Friends, don't miss this. If you're in a season of anger or frustration, that's okay. But don't stop going to the feet of Jesus to allow him to do his work through you. If you're here this morning and you're in a place and you're grieving and you're hurt, it's okay. But don't stop going to the feet of Jesus to find his peace and his comfort that overwhelms you. And if you're here this morning and you're questioning and you're doubting, that is okay. But the invitation is to come to the feet of Jesus for him to provide you with the answers that you need, not always the ones that you want. But how do we get there? We get there by constantly going to his word, by constantly being in prayer, by faithfully being in community with others and being able to be vulnerable with each other and to push each other and challenge each other and to love on each other and encourage each other. To admit in moments when you're not okay. But all of that takes humility and willingness. It takes perseverance not to try harder and to do better. Not to have better morals. But to admit that our deepest need is to always be at the feet of Jesus. Which is why I love that at this point in the narrative... Mark's focus shifts just a little bit. And at this point, he focuses on Jesus. And he shows us that Jesus' heart response to what's happening around him is forgiveness and compassion. That Jesus shows us a forgiving and compassionate heart. What I love about this story is, so the guys do all this work, 
to get their friend to the feet of Jesus. And what does Jesus do first? Does he heal him of his paralysis first? No. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And again, if it was me, I'd be like, hey, bro, that's not why we're here. He's got a bigger problem. But what I love about Mark's focus here is he says, no, he doesn't. Jesus says his first problem, his deepest need, is his sin. And truth be told, friends, it's at this part of the narrative, this is the place where our faith probably falters the most. N.T. Wright, who's a famous theologian, he's one of my favorite authors, he says this, he says, in many cultures today, forgiveness is seen as a sign of weakness. Revenge, for most people, is a moral duty. Sometimes whole families, whole communities are torn apart this way. Think of Northern Ireland or the Balkans. It's the only language they understand, people say, as they plant another bomb or aim another rifle. Sometimes whole nations and governments engage in childish but deadly tit-for-tat relations. People who live that way tend to think that God lives that way too. Be honest with yourselves here. When was the last time you said, God, I need your forgiveness? When was the last time that you went into the presence of the holy God and says, I need nothing more than your forgiveness? Maybe you've recently asked, for the forgiveness of others, but I would argue that's, that's another thing. That's different. But Jesus, moved by his compassion, he addresses the paralytic's deepest need first, that his need for ultimate satisfaction and belonging is not found in his healing of paralysis, but it's found in being made clean in his spirit. It's worth pointing out here, too, and you see it in this story, that when Jesus forgives the paralytic, what he's pointing out is that our problem in life is never in our suffering. It's in our sin. And when he forgives this man, his paralysis isn't healed. And I'm sure people have told him before that it's because of his sin that he is paralyzed. And Jesus shows, no, it's not. Because I just forgave him his sin, and he's still paralyzed. But the story doesn't end there. The next and final group of people, I think, is the one that I most relate with. Because as Jesus forgives the sins of this man, then there's another group in the house, these scribes. And they start questioning, but Mark says, in their hearts. They're not questioning out loud. They're not talking to each other. All of this is internal. 
And before we jump on the scribes and we start condemning them and talking bad about how horrible they are, listen, at this point in the story, their rationale is correct. What they are thinking is correct. Because here's what they say. Jesus, uh, he heals the man, and they say, who is this man that can forgive sins? Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's correct. Only God can forgive sins. And this group has been brought up in this Levitical Mosaic law where they have to go to the temple and they have to be declared clean and forgiven by the priests who act on the authority of God. So their thinking is correct. Jesus is not a priest. Jesus does not work at the temple. Jesus is a nobody. And here he comes saying, I can forgive sins. And the scribes are like, I don't think that's right. And they're questioning in his hearts. But then Jesus says this. He says, why do you question these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he picked up his bed and he went before them all. Notice at this point, it seems like the crowd parted. And they were all amazed and glorified. Glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And so there's one more response that we see here. And it's the questioning but rational heart. And again, this is probably where I identify most because so many times the stumbling block for me is the things of God just don't seem rational. Doesn't seem like they make sense. And I very quickly forget what Isaiah says. Isaiah 55, he writes this. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. For the heavens are higher than the earth and my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Isaiah understood as he's writing the words of God, God doesn't fit into our rationale, people. We can't figure him out. We can't come up with all the answers to all of our questions. But hear me, it's okay to have questions. But what we see with these scribes and why I put them in this category is that we constantly see their mind, their rationale takes over. And we'll see as this section unfolds that by the beginning of Mark chapter 3, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they've allowed their rationale to take them to a place where they're willing to kill Jesus. Instead of bringing their questions to the feet of Jesus, they allow their questions, they allow their minds to form this picture that is just covered with anger and frustration that they go so far as to plan to kill him. And friends, each and every week, we preach the gospel. And each and every week, all three of these responses are in this room. 
we have the person that comes in and they're interested and, and, and they enjoy studying the scripture, but they're in a place where they're not really willing to be moved by it. They're hesitant to enter into the tough part that faith requires to walk with the Holy Spirit, to allow the Holy Spirit to deal with the mess inside of us. And every week we have people that come in and they're questioning. And friends, I still question. But every week we have to decide, are we going to allow our minds to be our God, to try to put God, the unfathomable, into a finite created mind. And then every week we have those that come and they're humble and they're willing to be moved by the Spirit, to be transformed by the Spirit. But what I love about all of that is no matter your response, every day the invitation is the same because you have a God that approaches us with a forgiving and compassionate heart that says no matter where you are, come to my feet and you will find your deepest need. May not be your deepest wish, but it will be your ultimate need. So the question, church, for us this morning is this. Will you come? No matter your response, no matter where you are, will you come and sit at the feet of Jesus and go into his word and go into prayer and go into community being honest and open, humble and willing. Even if you're interested or questioning, will you come with open hands, allowing Jesus to provide you with that which you need the most? Let's pray. Godfather, we thank you, God, for your goodness, for your faithfulness, God, for your unchanging character that gives us a picture of what true justice and mercy looks like, truth and grace. God, that you have provided a way for all of us to come as we are. to bring our anger and our grief and our sorrow and our questioning and confusion, our pride, our self-salvation strategies to you. And God, that you treat us just like you looked at those four men and the paralytic, God, that you look on us with compassion, you look on us with forgiveness, you look on us with love. And so, God, might we respond today. Might we place ourselves at your feet to be willing to be moved 
to be willing to surrender our thoughts and to confess that we're glad that your ways are not our ways. And God, might we in that find rest as you grant us that which we need the most. In Jesus' name, amen.